0: I do want to uh, thank all of you for your help in the work and the things that are coming along, and we're very grateful for it. I hope you'll keep praying for the work in every way. We certainly do need it at this time. I want to describe for you an event that took place 29 years ago yesterday. Some of you will know what I'm talking about, but that was the death of Herbert W. Armstrong, January the 16th, 1986, And he had human nature, like I do, and all of us do. But God did use that man more than any man he has used in hundreds of years. And most of us who were in the work for a long time know that. It's very obvious how God used him. And we're very grateful for what he did. He is responsible for much of what I'm going to say today later in the sermon. He was given by God unusual understanding of prophecy and he helped the whole Church of God, that is, those who followed him, understand the truth of our national identity and how that is the key to 90% of end-time prophecy. The Sardis Church, whom he worked with for quite a number of years, did not understand that. They still don't understand it. And some of the other branches of God's Church are kind of playing it down like it's not very important. and doesn't mean very much, but it means very, very much, very, very much. And it's something we really do need to understand and appreciate. So it is good to meditate on Mr. Armstrong's life and what God did through him because he built the largest group of people here in the United States following God and maybe ever as far as that's concerned, as far as those in the United States of America. But anyway, any rate, he did a wonderful work. And Dr. Nail and Mr. Dr. Mr. Ames started to call him Dr. Ames, which he should be, and many of our other leading men came through Ambassador College, as I did, and were taught by him personally in many cases, and had great benefit from God using that man. So we're grateful to be here and want to honor him on those occasions. Prophecy is surging ahead. If you've been watching world events, you know that. It is an exciting time. And where things are obviously speeding up, as we might say, not speeding up, it does surprise God, of course, he's in charge. But sometimes things move very slowly, Then other times you can see they're just moving more swiftly toward the end of the age. And sometime back I used to think about saying that maybe, we don't know, we're not setting dates, but the tribulation, the great tribulation coming on the American and British descended peoples could easily start in 8 to 12 more years. And that's still true. But because of recent events, I wouldn't be afraid to say five to ten more years. But we're not saying anything. We're just talking about speculation. And we hope Christ will come sooner, of course, at all times. But things are certainly moving events ahead. When you think about the horrifying events of just this last week, all those 17 people killed in France and around uh, Paris, and the people killed up in, up in Belgium and over 200 and perhaps even as many as 2,000 people killed up in Nigeria and even more in other parts of Africa with the Boko Haram, which is a branch of the Al-Qaeda and these other terrorist groups coming in there. It's moving and things are moving around the world. Right now we're facing a whole bunch of problems and it's good that we all think about that from time to time. We haven't had a direct sermon on prophecy for a long time. And as Mr. Armstrong's anniversary came up, I thought it might be a good time to review some of these big picture items that are taking place. Thousands of you out there that may hear this later never knew Mr. Armstrong and maybe haven't heard him preach on prophecy. Our booklets cover bits and pieces of it, but I thought to give it a coherent overview and tie in certain things of recent date might be helpful to all of you. And I hope you'll listen very carefully and may give you some new things you hadn't thought of before. Brethren, these things are happening. I think you do know that we're in terrible trouble in the Middle East with this ISIS group, ISIL, talking about the Levant, that I that I-L at the end. Levant means most of the Middle East. Interesting is some as analysts have pointed out that Middle East comment that Levant includes Israel. Of course, they want that to be part of their caliphate. And they are starting a caliphate over there as best they can. I think God will stop this certain movement, but it's the beginning of that. And that's certainly going to provoke the king of the south to get together. Those Arab nations are going to have to get together to get the final thing done. It's certainly going to drive the European nations together. There are analysts and newspaper writers and so forth all across France that are beginning to write and talk about the fact they've got to take this Israeli movement or this uh, 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 Muslim movement very, very seriously. They've been letting them in by the hundreds of thousands, and they're going to have to stop. There are going to be class riots, race riots over there and over here as these things come to the fore. It's going to affect us all. Right now, the Chinese and the Russians are entering various agreements to bring their two currencies more closely together, and they definitely have indicated, and they've admitted it, they're hoping to bring the dollar down. And if they did do that, that could happen yet this spring, some are saying. I don't think it will, but it could happen yet this spring. They could push a button and withdraw trillions of dollars of United States bonds that China and other nations have purchased, and that would immediately change everything. The Swiss recently changed the valuation of their franc, as you've noticed. It threw the whole stock market into chaos and the commodity market, and gold shot up $61 in the last few days. Those things are happening, can happen very, very quickly, like this revaluation just yesterday of the Swiss franc. It threw many people into consternation that are dealing with the international currency markets and the stability of our whole financial system. We don't know how quickly these things can happen. They can't happen suddenly. And, of course, we see how China continues to shred its stuff in the South China Sea, and they're pushing around the various navies from Japan to the Philippines and others. And so they're trying to get many of those nations together to stop the Chinese takeover of those lands that they have been contesting for years and yet have basically belonged for decades or centuries to other nations. Many events are getting right on edge. I'm not going to try to name them all, but it's good that we see how quickly things could change on the world scene. And you need to realize that, and I hope that you do, and that we can see the big picture of what God is bringing about in prophecy the big picture and what to do, what we ought to do. Back in Matthew 24, I'm going to cover some of this very quickly, brethren, because I would like to give you a big picture of prophecy and review. I can't begin to cover everything, of course. But Matthew 24 is something you're very familiar with, I hope. But look there, and you know in verse 3, the disciples asked Christ what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age. Not the end of the world, but the end of the age. So he gave them key things to watch for in order. First of all, take heed that no man deceive you. And he talks about false prophets. Secondly, he talks about wars, ethnic wars. And we're already beginning to see that different ethnic groups are fighting each other. Small wars, and then later a different Greek word is used meaning world wars. And then there will be famines. That's one of the next things starting to happen in various parts of the world. Right now millions of people are going to bed hungry every night and that number is increasing rapidly, famines, then pestilences or disease epidemics. So we have the widespread increase of AIDS and other terrible diseases and now Ebola has come on the scene and it's not spreading as fast as some have thought it might but who knows what comes next and after a few months of experimentation with some of these remedies, they find out that some of these uh, uh, different different, uh, serums they have run out. Their effect stops working, and so it doesn't help them. And that's going to happen. Doctors, the medical fraternity will be overwhelmed with disease disease epidemics all over, many of them right here in America. Then there are going to be earthquakes in various places, and then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you. You'll be hated of all nations for my name's sake. That's us. God's true church at some point will come to light. And I feel some of that will happen before the two witnesses come along. The Bible indicates that. As I've told you a lot of times recently, we've got to be prepared. You've got to be prepared to be real men and real women, not little boys that run the other way at the first whiff of danger. Don't do that. Be a fighter. Be a soldier for Jesus Christ, not to hate others, but to be unafraid. And to say, I'm going to be a man during this coming tribulation. I hope all of you will. So that's going to happen. Many many will be offended, betray one another, and hate one another. And many false prophets at that point will rise even more. Another wave of false religion. And we know there's going to be a great revival of religion in Europe. That's one of the next things to come up. And a great false prophet who will bring fire down from heaven. That's described in Revelation 13, verse 13. This man will bring fire down from heaven. God says that directly. False prophets will have tremendous effect on people. And then the gospel of the kingdom will be preached to the world as a witness. And brethren, don't give up and get discouraged because our numbers in the church are not as big as we would like. How many did Jesus Christ have after three and a half years of the ministry of the very Son of God on earth? Read it in the first chapter of Acts one hundred and twenty one hundred and twenty he was not there to call everybody and he didn't later on it got into tens of thousands but it took a long time for it to get into hundreds of thousands and by that time the gentile world and the rest of the world was beginning to chime in so christ did not try to call everybody he's not trying to call that today but we are to preach this message of a coming world government the world is tearing itself up these nations that hate each other These ethnic groups hate each other. These religious groups like Islam and the so-called Christians and the so-called you know, Hindus and all the rest of them are having religious wars and ethnic wars, and they're getting worse. And they're going to get much, much worse before the end. And we're going to be living through a very terrible time. And any of us older people who go to sleep are going to escape a terrible time. My friend, Mr. Lee, we had most of you were here. I suppose about half of you might have been there at the at the memorial we had for Mr. League this past week, he is not resting resting in peace. He's not suffering. These things are gonna get much, much worse. But we who live on must be ready and understand the meaning of it. God has told us about it ahead of time, and so we've got to be brave and carry on no matter what. So the next big thing then after the preaching of the gospel of the coming king kingdom or government of God is therefore when you see The abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet. Daniel the prophet mentioned that three different times. Standing in the holy place. Standing right in some sacred place. Somewhere probably on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. When that happens, let him who reads understand. So we do want to understand. So be sure that you're ready and watching. And he said, pray that your flight may not be in the winter or on the Sabbath. For there will be great tribulation, the greatest trouble in human history, such as has not been since the beginning of the world, known or ever shall be, unless those days were shortened. You see, it could have gone on seven years, but God has already planned to cut that seven years in half. Maybe even the three and a half years will be shortened. As we've explained, the last year might be the day of the Lord and not the tribulation. Unless those days were shortened, no flesh. No human being would be left alive, but for the elect's sake those days shall be shortened. So we're living into the most tumultuous times in human history, and it's good that we think about what Christ specifically said, one event right after the order, the order of events that we can watch for. I want to turn back to what Mr. Armstrong often called the pivotal prophecy in the entire Bible. It was the first big prophecy that was a full-scale prophecy. And Mr. Armstrong used to talk about it being a very important one, which indeed it is. He's talking about the descendants of Israel, which I hope all of you understand is our people. The British descended and American peoples are directly described here. Leviticus 26, he said, You shall not make idols, you shall keep my Sabbaths, if you walk in my statutes, verse 3. The statutes, of course, include God's holy days. The statutes include the command, Do not lie with a man as with a woman. It is an abomination. We're to not have same-sex marriage. That is an abomination. So if you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments, perform them, then I'll give you rain in due season. You'll eat your bread to the full. I'll give you peace to the land. And the sword will not go through your land, all these other things. But, verse 14... But verse 14 if you do not obey me and do not observe my commandments if you despise my statutes even the christian so-called christian world despises god's statutes most of them do not believe in or practicing tithing tithing is a statute of god and many in god's church are not even tithing by the way if you despise my statutes And God's statutes include the holy days the holy days of God are part of God's statutes one of God's statutes says you're not to have homosexual relations it is an abomination our nation even our Supreme Court is beginning to consider the final round on that apparently in April and they're going to decide whether our nation officially despises this statute of Almighty God and if they decide in favor of homosexual marriage which I'm sure they do another wave Problems may begin bigger than the earlier waves. I'm not saying it will, but at some point God's going to say that's it. And he's going to start pouring out greater problems. Our currency may come down. Other things are going to start going wrong with our nation. Maybe the California drought, which is already the worst in history, will get much worse and we'll have far fewer vegetables, far fewer fruits, all kinds of other things may start speeding up. If our nation goes whole hog toward that abomination, sticking our finger right in God's face, if you despise my statutes, or your soul abhors my judgments, but break my covenant, this I will do. Verse 16, I will appoint terror. And as I pointed out before, the first thing he mentioned here is terror. 9-11, terrorism. Now we have you know, once, uh, I say 14, 14, 15, or whatever started before that. The beginning of this year, terrorism in Europe more than in recent years. And those things are suddenly starting to happen to the Israelites people, not just to the tribe of Joseph, but also to the other nations of Israel. Terror, wasting disease and fever. And certainly this Ebola is described that way. AIDS and Ebola are both diseases like this very much. It's going to spread and spread rapidly as we keep sticking our finger in God's face. You'll sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it. Our fr- fr- crops are going to dry up in many cases, and a lot of our crops may already have been sold on the futures market and technically belong to Japan or China, or someone else. And we would be breaking our own commitments if we didn't send that food away while our own people eat it. Need it, I mean. So think about that. Those things can happen. If for all this you do not obey me, verse 18, then I'll punish you seven times. And many commentaries point out that term could mean fold, sevenfold more for your sins. Seven times is bad. I will break the pride of your power Our power is being broken, and our pride in our power is being broken, too. Even what we do have, we're afraid to use. We're scared. We're scared chickens. I will make your heavens like iron, your earth like bronze, and increase drought and famine again. Your strength will be spent in vain. Your land shall not produce its produce. And then he'll send sevenfold more plagues, verse 21. And some of the wild beasts will kill your children. We'll have wild animals. Maybe some of that will involve rats and bringing in the plague in the major cities where the rats sometimes outnumber the people. And if by these things you're still not reformed, I'll punish you sevenfold more. I'll bring a sword against you. So again, more direct attacks on our nation. When you're gathered together in your cities, I'll send pestilence. A higher level of disease epidemics is coming and you'll be delivered to the hand of your enemy. Then we begin to go into slavery, a national slavery. Again, most of you knew that. Some of you know old newer brethren might not fully realize that's prophesied again and again in the Old Testament, especially the American and British people, the peoples of Joseph, the tribe of Joseph, are going into a national slavery, such as has never happened in human history. And it's not going to be much, much worse than the earlier slavers I'll tell you about later. If you still won't contrary, don't walk with God. I'll walk contrary to you in theory. This is verse 18 or 28. I will chastise you seven times. You shall eat the flesh of your sons and daughters. You'll be so hungry, you'll cannibalize. You say, that couldn't happen. No, you're wrong. You ought to have known the recent, uh, 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 the recent registrar of Ambassador College in Big Sandy, Dr. Lynn Torrance, As he calls it, he was a guest of the emperor. Some of our older students have heard him tell this, and he was a very dedicated, honest man and a minister of Jesus Christ. He saw Americans eating Americans. He saw British eating British. When you're in the hold of a ship and you don't have enough food, you don't have enough water, you don't have enough air, men are dying all around you. You're trying to think of any possible way to stay alive. And that's what happened in many places in different countries. In the second world war. Not back in the dark ages. We're talking about men that I have known. And known very well. And that's already happening of course. In different parts of the world. Where they get so in trouble. They turn to cannibalism. God says so. He says I will lay your cities waste. Here in verse 39. That did not happen. In Israel's first captivity. It's going to happen this time. I'll bring your land to desolation. I will scatter you among the nations and draw a sword after you, and your land shall be desolate and your cities waste. He repeats that twice. In the coming tribulation, the attack upon the American and British nations, the cities will be laid waste. Now, some of the old Protestant ministers don't understand our national identity. They don't understand prophecy. And frankly, they don't understand much of anything when you really look into it. But they think, oh, no, that's what happened way back. In the invasion, when Assyria invaded ancient Israel. No, it didn't. It did not happen. Turn with me to 2 Kings. Turn with me, brethren, to 2 Kings. And here it describes clearly that time. For the children of Israel walked in the sins of Jeroboam, verse 22. 2 Kings 17, And they did not depart from them until removed, the Lord removed Israel out of his sight. As he said, by all his servants, the prophet... So Israel was carried away from his own land to Assyria as it is at this day so he was taken into captivity back then yes then the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Cutha, Ava, Hamath and the Sepharvaim and placed them in the cities of Samaria. Samaria was Israel. Were their cities laid waste? No. Hundreds of thousands or millions of people were moving into those cities and begins to tell all the things that they did in there and how God helped them even he bring a prophet back to teach these uh, pagans the way of the land of Israel. So he quit killing them with lions, but he let them stay there. They were sent as his servants. He called Pharaoh his servant. Remember, he called Cyrus his servants. He used some of these other nations He's going to use the modern Assyrians, which means the modern Germans, as his servants. They're not doing it just because they are so bad. God is going to use that power to teach us a lesson. God rebukes and chases every son he loves. God is going to rebuke and chasten every nation he loves, especially his own people. The peoples of Britain and America Who sent more Bibles More ministers More missionaries More schools And everything else Like all over the world Than any other people We're the ones that published the Bibles We're the ones that sent them out But we do obey the very book We printed and sent out No we don't We despise God's statutes We despise his judgments And God is not going to allow that to continue He's going to finally say That's it I've had enough And stop all this so we need to realize that, brethren. And these scriptures make that very plain. No, this next tribulation, the cities will be laid waste. I'd like to see New York. I've got to see it 10 or 15 times. It's a wonderful city to see. But it may, in a few years, be made a great natural harbor. You understand what I mean? When they bring around the atomic and hydrogen bombs, L.A. and New York may become just great big pools of water and they'll be able to pull their ships up there There won't be anything left they'll be laid waste and many of our cities will be laid waste not always where there's water of course so we want to understand god makes it very plain it's going to involve a religious element too a religious element we don't mention this prophecy very often but it's good to turn with me if you would back to isaiah 47 isaiah chapter 47 here he talks about us And he says in verse 1, Come down and sit in the dust, O virgin daughter of Babylon, the modern daughter of ancient Babylon with all of its pagan ideas and the whole way of life. Sit on the ground, O daughter of the Chaldeans, you'll, you'll no longer be called tender and delicate and all these good things. I will take vengeance and I will not arbitrate with a man. As for our Redeemer, the Lord of Hosts, is named the Holy One of Israel. Verse 5, sit in silence and go into darkness, O daughter of the Chaldeans. This means, no doubt, modern Germany and the modern beast power. For you shall no longer be called the Lady of Kingdoms. And certainly this whole system is going to involve around worshiping this false church, this false God. I was angry with my people. I profaned my inheritance. And throughout the whole Old Testament, I don't have time on this one, but God calls Israel his inheritance again and again. I have given them into your hand, the hand of the modern Babylon. You showed them no mercy on the elderly. You laid your yoke. A yoke of slavery is going to be laid on us. And you said, this modern religious political system God calls Babylon, as we'll see in a moment, you have said... I shall be a lady forever. So you did not take these things to heart nor remember the latter end. But these two things will come on you in one moment in a day, the loss of children and widowhood, they'll come up on you in their fullness. Why? Because of the multitude of your sorceries. We're getting into false religion, seances, Ouija boards, horoscopes, following every false thing. The multitude of your sorceries, the abundance of your enchantments. So in one day, the loss of children and widowhood is going to happen to this whole system. And God makes that very plain. This is back in Isaiah, written way, way back, hundreds of years before Christ. But we turn to Revelation now and we see that in the New Testament, this book ties in one part of the Bible with another when you understand it. And God described the modern Babylon here in Revelation 17. And he says in verse 14, the beast that was and is not is the eighth there's seven revivals, but the original one, and then he says, "This is the eighth, and is of the set, and is of the seven of the seven revivals, and is going into perdition or destruction." Verse 12: The ten horns are ten kings that are going to rise. They'll have one mind. They'll give their power and authority to the beast. They're all going to give. Now, I grew up during the Second World War. Back during the Second World War, France and Poland and Holland and and Norway, they did not give their power and authority to Germany. They fought, some of them, to their death. This time, they're already beginning to let Germany take the lead. They're already beginning to let that nation run, Europe, and they're going to do so even more. They will give their power and authority to the beast, and these will make war on the land, this whole European system, the beast. And the lamb will overcome them, for he is Lord of lords and king of kings. Christ is the great warrior, the Lord God of the armies of Israel. And they're going to try to overthrow him. And those who are with him are going to be, of course, God's true saints. Some of us, all of us, we hope. They're called, chosen, and faithful. And he said the waters where the harlot sits are peoples, nations, and tongues. Where this false system has been operating. And they are, of course, finally going to hate the harlot and burn her flesh with fire. The people that they've taken over are going to see how false that system is and turn on them and, and probably torture and mur- murder the, the priests or beat them up and tear this whole system down toward the end. Verse 18, the woman whom you saw is that great city. That whole system, it could be Rome itself, but he's talking about the whole system which reigns over the kings of the earth. Verse 18, or chapter 18, then he sees, uh, an angel come down with great glory, crying mightily. Verse 2, Babylon the Great is fallen, has be- fallen, become the habitation of demons. So this whole system will be given over to the devil, a habitation of demons, a prison of every foul spirit, a cage for every unclean and faithful bird, for all the nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication, and the kings of the earth have made it fornication with her. They're drunk. They're drunk with false doctrine. I heard another voice. Come out of her, my people. We have hundreds of brethren over there. God help them to wake up. Come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins. But all of us here, brethren, without realizing it, are sometimes part of that system because that system has influence all over the world. And all the religious ideas of that system are part of what is, in fact, modern Babylon. Come out, lest you receive of her plagues. For her sins have reached to heaven. God has remembered her iniquities. Remember her just as she remembered rendered to you. And so on. And she's going to be punished. In measure that she glorified herself and lived. In that same measure give her torment and sorrow. Verse 7. For she says in her heart. Notice. I set a queen and am no widow. And will see no sorrow. Paraphrasing exactly what we read. Back in Isaiah 47. That same system. Ancient Babylon, now it's modern Babylon. Therefore, her plagues will come in one day death, mourning, and famine, and she'll be utterly burned with fire, for strong is the Lord God who judges her. A great trading system. It says in verse 11 the merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her, for no one buys their merchandise anymore. And it goes on and on about that. Verse 19. They wail and moan, Great, alas, the great city in which all who had ships on the sea became rich by her wealth. For in one hour she is made desolate. Again, many times, brethren, in these prophecies, God says it's going to happen quickly. Now, the one hour could be figuratively, but it sure does mean ten years. In one hour, suddenly it's going to be a turning point and they'll start down. And certainly the whole thing may be finished in a matter of months, not years. Very quick changes toward the time of the end. Suddenly, quickly, watch and pray. Wake up. God warns us continually about that. These things are already happening, and they're going to happen big time. Now, back in Jeremiah, verse 30, this ties in as well, and one we have often used. And I want you to tie it in with this whole picture of what's happening right now before your eyes. It is going to continue to happen. And it is going to continue to happen. I've been in this work 65 years. And I've told you many times and I personally heard Mr. Armstrong before God, I heard him saying back in the late 1940s, the early 1950s, many, many times that Germany will rise again. He said that specifically, yes. Germany will rise again. And most commentators and historians, oh no, they won't rise again. I remember four women when I started the church in San Diego back in September, 5, 1952, they came one time after we baptized them. We shouldn't have baptized them, we made a mistake. They talked about being repentant, but they weren't. They didn't leave, but after the church, they argued with me and then they never came back again. These two women and their grown daughters, they said, there's no way Germany's gonna come back again. They're so hungry over there, they've been members, the mothers of the WACS, the Women's Army Corps. They said these people are eating the leaves off of, off of trees. Some are chewing on bark. They're doing anything to stay alive. They're crushed. They're not going to come back again. They're wrong. They have come back again. And I've lived long enough to see it and experience it. And Mr. Armstrong, during that trip, I was in his, with him, helping him in the tours back in 1954 over in Belfast. And over in Glasgow, down in Manchester, and later in London, those four cities where he held campaigns, he said again and again, if you British people don't wake up and get back to the true God, the God of your fathers, if you don't wake up and begin to take the Bible seriously and obey his commandments, he said the British Empire will be no more. And he said, your great nation will be no more if you keep on, you're going down. You'll end up being a second or third class nation. Eventually you'll be conquered and ca- taken in captivity. A lot of the people didn't like that, frankly. They were new, they were just hearing Mr. Armstrong and kind of wavery coming through the long distance radio Luxembourg. And over in Glasgow, the hall uh, uh, custodian, I guess you'd call him, he had his work clothes on, and he was apparently in charge of keeping the hall clean and he came up to Mr. Armstrong like he was gonna hit it. He was all mad, says, that can't happen, it's an insult to our nation. Well, I moved in close, I wasn't very big, but I was as big as he was and not younger and had been a boxer, which he hadn't been, I hope. (laughs) At any rate, I came up and kind of, he saw me watching, one move fellow, you're going on the ground. And I was gonna kill him, I was just gonna, you know, bother him a little bit, (laughs) but I was ready. He was mad. All these things have happened. It was very dramatic to me because some of the people would argue with him about it later. He said those things again and again. And then in the 1960s and 70s, he began to say several times, as many of you older brethren, I think that Mrs. Murray would remember how Mr. Armstrong said back there, and I'm sure Mr. and Mrs. Davis and some other older ones are here, how he said the Berlin Wall will come down and then Eastern European nations will break free from the Soviet Union. And they will be free. The Berlin Wall will come down. The two Germanys will become one. When was he saying that? I can't be sure it was the late 60s, but certainly by the 70s. He didn't even die until 1986. But those things were already happening before he died. And in late 1989 and 1990, those things happened big time in that very winter one thing after the other in the Berlin Wall did come down within a very few years after he died. Who was saying that? Billy Graham? No. Oral Roberts? No. Gerald Falwell? No. Nobody! Nobody but Herbert W. Armstrong was making these prophecies very plain and saying specifically what began to happen before he died. He said those things. He was God's servant. The Bible makes a lot of those things plain when you understand it. So it's good to know those things ahead of time, and they are going to happen. I want to tell you, while I'm still here, God's prophecies are real. These things are real, and I've seen them happen before my eyes. And I hope that all of you can wake up and you young people can understand. This is not daddy and mother's religion. This is God's religion. This book is inspired by the God who gives you life and breath. The God that gives you life and breath and these things are happening right now and they're going to continue to happen. Do we make some little technical mistake once in a while? Yes. Did Mr. Armstrong hope the kingdom would come sooner? Yes. So did the Apostle Paul. He said, if we are here, then this will that will happen. Well, the implication was he thought he was going to be there. He wasn't. But we were wrong on dates. But the big events have always happened and they are going to happen. And this church, the true church of God, is the only one that understands those things because Mr. Armstrong was God's servant. So let's understand that. Now let's turn back, which I started to do here, to, to Jeremiah uh, chapter 30. Jeremiah chapter 30. And uh, give you some things here that you need to know. Most of you heard part of this but may not understand how significant it is. So I hope you'll listen carefully. Listen up, as they say in the vernacular. Here in God's Jeremiah, when was Jeremiah written? Well, it was written over 100 years after ancient Israel was taken into captivity. And nearly all the scholars know it was written about, you know, uh, 604 to 585. It was written before, long after these things happened to ancient Israel. Was he talking about, like I'd start talking about a civil war. You'd say, well, Gassy, Mr. Meredith is talking about the war that happened back in the 1860s. Jeremiah was not doing that. He was talking about yet another captivity, yet another punishment upon Israel. So verse 4, Jeremiah 30, verse 4, Now these are the words the Lord spoke, God spoke, concerning Israel and Judah. Does God know the difference? A lot of Protestants don't know the difference. They think it's all the same thing. God said Israel and Judah. For thus says the eternal, we have heard a voice of trembling and a fear and not of peace. Men are scared to death, grabbing their belly as though they're all about to vomit. They're so scared like a woman in labor and all faces turn pale. Alas, verse seven, for that day is great so that none is like it. None. No day has ever happened so bad of what's going to happen in a few years now. It is what the time of ancient China's trouble or Egypt or someone. No, it is the time of Jacob's trouble. Jacob's name was changed to Israel, as I trust you all know. Look it up. The time of modern Israel's trouble. So it's horrible. The Great Tribulation. It's his trouble. The Great Tribulation falls on our people, the descendants of Israel. We are the modern house of Israel, the British descended and Americans and peace-loving North peoples of Northwest Europe like the French, the Dutch, the Danes, the Swiss, and so on, the Scandinavian countries. He shall be saved out of it. But boy, do we get into it first. Says the Turtle of Hosts, I will break his yoke, a yoke of slavery. That term is always used for slavery. I'll break his yoke from your neck. I'll burst your bonds. Foreigners shall no more enslave them. He's talking about a coming slavery the peoples of jacob being delivered from that slavery is that something that's going to happen way back then notice the timing he says he's going to break the the yoke but they shall serve the eternal their god and notice david their king whom i will raise up for them there's your time setting this final slavery lasts right up until christ's second coming and the resurrection of the dead and King David is going to be made king over all Israel. Scriptures throughout the Old Testament say that again and again. David will be their king. Therefore do not fear, joke Jacob, or be dismayed, Israel. For behold, I will see from afar and your seed from the land of their captivity. And Jacob shall return and be quiet, and God will be with them. And he will correct them, but not destroy them utterly. He says, verse 14, the latter part. Because your sins have increased. What you cry in your affliction. Your sorrow is incurable because of the multitude of your iniquities. You're getting into divorce after divorce after divorce. You're getting into wife swapping. You're getting into all kinds of literally millions of young people living together. Even without need of marriage, they think they just are living together, committing fornication. Did the preacher say anything? No! Most of them don't say anything. You know that. Why don't they talk about it? They were taken out and stoned in an ancient Israel if they went into fornication. They were taken out and stoned if they got an adultery. What do our modern ministers say? Preach the soft and sweet things. Preach deceit. Say peace, peace, when there is no peace. That's what God says about our modern preachers. Much of the reason that this thing is happening is because our ministers have turned away. They rebelled against God and are preaching a false doctrine about the person of Christ and not Christ's message of the coming government of God and the need to obey the laws of God, which are part of that government. That they do not preach. They leave that out. A false God, a false Christ, a false Christianity. And so God says he's going to bring up Jacob or David will be the king and he will help straighten this out. It's going to come because your sins have increased. I've done these things. And God will bring us down because of our sins. And he says in verse 23, Behold, the whirlwind of the eternal goes forth with fury. A continuing whirlwind. It will fall uh, uh, violently on the head of the wicked. The fierce anger of the eternal will not return until he's done it, until he's performed the intents of his heart. Notice, in the latter days... Here's when all this takes place in our time now. In the latter days, you will consider it. That's when this final punishment, this final captivity comes on the house of Israel, not just on the Jews, but it comes on the house of Israel, and God knows the difference between Israel and Judah, and these prophecies were given decades after ancient Israel had gone into captivity over a 100 years later. So this is very clear who it's talking about. Let's turn to the book of Ezekiel now, brethren. Ezekiel is a very powerful book, and you need to really understand it. I hope all of you have time to read it a great deal more after this sermon than the time I have left to explain some of it to you. But at any rate, turn to Ezekiel, the first chapter. Now it came to pass in the 30th year, on the fifth day of the month, as I was among the captives by the river Kibar, he saw heavens open and I saw visions of God. Ezekiel was given tremendous visions. I often think about it, brethren, here I'm a minister, Mr. Ames is a minister, others of us. God is not giving us that kind of direct help and inspiration anymore. We have the Bible. But near the time of the end, if we're really close to God, I think He will begin to give us some direct revelations. There will be a time we have to tell people, flee here, go there, do that. If we're close enough to God and God is real to us, these things will begin to happen. So then God gave them visions and the word of the Lord came expressly to Ezekiel the priest. Ezekiel was a Levite, a Levite. Only the priests could be Levites. And the son of Buzi, by the Chaldeans by the river Kebar. Then I looked, and behold, a whirlwind coming out of the north, a tremendous power, a radiance of God's, uh, of God's glory is taking up most of the rest of this uh, chapter. So when I saw it, the last verse, last part, I fell on my face and heard a voice speaking. He said, chapter 2, verse 1, Son of man, stand on your feet. I'll speak to you. And then the Spirit entered me when he spoke and set me on my feet. He said, Son of man, verse 3, I am sending you. He was among the captives of Judah, but he was being sent somewhere else. Where? Where was he being sent? I'm sending you to the children of Israel, the house of Israel, to a rebellious nation that has rebelled against me they and their fathers from time. For they are impudent and stubborn. Do the people listening to our program, are they deeply humbled when they hear our program? Well, when we have a campaign, most of them are not. They're not called by God. The whole world is turning away from any idea of a real God They make fun of the idea. They're impudent. Oh, God, ha ha, well, you're, you're out of date. You're living in the dark age to think about there's a real God. Way back in 1963, I was on a round-the-world trip with David John Hill, my friend, a very powerful teacher and writer. We were on an educator's tour, and it had been booked for about 30 or 40 people, but because the, uh, this certain group was starting to take over in uh, in Syria, a war was looming. I've told you that another time, how Andrew said it, the others didn't, but they were all professors, very smart men and women. One of them was named Dorothy. I can't remember the rest of her name, but Dr. Dorothy from Harvard University. And she was a woman's liver and completely out of touch with reality. The two women, the two men, I mean, were out of touch with reality. And then we had one little old woman with us that didn't understand much at all. She was very sentimental. She was from God's own Bible college in Cincinnati, Ohio. I don't know if that college is still here, but she's a sweet old gal. And we had different factions in our little group. There were six of us. We were together all day long on these old Chrysler limousines being taken around by the Middle East guides. And when things started to break loot in the Ba'ath Rebellion in Syria, I said, let's get out of here. And the only one saw I said, the jet driver, he said, turn around and get out of here. I just took charge. And we didn't even get to the top of the hill going out of town the very way we'd come in a few months earlier, a few minutes earlier, there's a big tank right in the road with its gun, its cannon pointed right toward us. And our driver got out, and I could hear his, he was shaking, and he talking real fast, and, American, American, he's trying to tell them again and again, we're American tourists. So this guy finally looked kind of me. Okay, and he led us by. We got out of there. We heard later the whole city blew up in this Ba'ath rebellion. So we were glad that I was reading the newspapers that knew what was going on. The others didn't know what was going on. They were going to go right down in the middle. We heard shooting and machine gun fire. I said, that's machine gun fire. These egghead professors didn't understand it at all. (laughs) And I remember near the end, they began to realize that John Hill and I were ministers. We didn't tell them that. We played cards and drank beer and acted very normal, quote unquote, during most of the tour. Finally, they could hear from little remarks. They were smart, but they were carnal. And he said, you guys are ministers. And they narrowed it down Well, we had to admit that we were ministers. Then we talked a little bit about religion. And this one, Morgan, Dr. Morgan Thomas, I think PhD from Lafayette College in Pennsylvania, I believe it was. And he said, you don't believe in a real God, he asked me. You don't believe in the father figure. He acts incredulous. You don't believe in a father figure. I said, yes, I do. He's the, made, the one that made you and gave you the breath of air you breathe, you know, and I, I went in, and he didn't understand. We were still friends. I did it in a basically decent way, but they didn't understand. The more education of this world people have, the harder it is to learn the truth quite often. Mr. Armstrong said it's 10 times harder to unlearn false ideas than it is to learn the truth in the first place. Kind of interesting, But at any rate, he shows how hard-headed and and arrogant the people of Israel are. But they'll know eventually a prophet has been among them. Verse 5. Don't be afraid of them, he said. You're hard, I'm going to make your forward as hard as their forward. You're going to be hard-headed and don't be afraid. Tell them the truth. Son of Man, chapter 3, verse 4. Go to the house of Israel and speak with the words, my words in your mouth. For you're not sent to people of unfamiliar speech, but to hard, of hard language, but to the house of Israel. And they will understand, but they will not pay attention. Verse 8, Behold, I have made your face strong against their face. We've got to have courage. We can't be overwhelmed by someone's degrees or reverend so-called doctor so-and-so from some seminary. They're blind. They don't understand the truth at all. They just do not. So don't be overcome by that. I'll make your face strong against their faces and your forehead strong against their forehead. So don't be afraid of them, God tells Ezekiel. You go ahead and speak the truth, whether they obey or whether they don't obey. Then we come to chapter 4. Turn to chapter 4, brethren, of this book of Ezekiel. This is a vital key that many people, even in the church, don't fully understand. You also, son of man, take a clay tablet like you're portraying something, a false uh, a warfare out through this war, like little boys playing in a sand pit or something. Portray on it a city, Jerusalem. So this was to re- represent Jerusalem. A lay siege against it, like you're laying siege against Jerusalem. Build up a siege wall, heap up a mound against it, set camps against it, and place battering rams against it all around against this fake Jerusalem. This kind of plaything. This will be what? The last verse of part of verse three. This will be a sign to who? To the Jews. This city of Jerusalem is to be a sign to the house of Israel. You think no, that's all the Jews. No. The house of Israel is to be a sign to the British descended and American peoples primarily, as you read the whole Bible in the Old Testament, you'll talk about the house of Joseph. Represented the house of Israel especially but especially all the other nations of northwestern Europe the peace loving nations so he said lie on your left side and that you'll bear your iniquity for a certain number of days and he said uh, that that, that it punished Israel and then that represents the house of Israel and when you have done this lie again verse 6 on your right side Then you shall bear the iniquity of the house of Judah. Does God who's writing this know the difference between the house of Israel and the house of Judah? Read it. He knows the difference. He's saying do one thing for one house, do another thing for the other house. So you lie 40 days it represents the house of Judah, for I've laid on you a day for a year. That's one of the places where this day for a year in prophecy is indicated, and the other place is Numbers 14, Numbers 14, verse 34, if you want to look it up, where God uses a day for a year in Bible prophecy. And so then he said, after identifying Israel, he says in verse 5, or chapter 5, Ezekiel chapter 5, You, son of man, take a sharp sword, lay it as a barber's razor, pass it over your head and your beard, then take balances to weigh and divide the hair, you shall burn with fire one-third in the midst of the city. So one-third of the fire, one-third of these people at least, are to be burned up. When the days of the straits are finished, then you take one-third and strike it round about with a sword. Another going to be killed of a thorn. One-third, that's a lot of people. And you shall scatter the third part to the wind. In other words, they're apparently taken into slavery. They're scattered and chapter verse three, you shall also take a small number of them that escaped. They weren't killed by the sword, and they weren't killed by famine, pestilence, or whatever. Take another third and throw them into the midst of the fire. Some people are, are, are spared, but they get sassy and turn aside, just like the children of Israel. And and during the time God put them through the uh, deserts for the 40 years of wandering to begin to murmur and gripe and complain, and God slew some of them with serpents and so on. Another third, throw them into the fire, for from there a fire will go out into where? To Judah? No, he's talking about who? From there a fire will go into all the house of Israel. And this probably includes all 12 tribes. He says in verse 7, Thus says the eternal, because you have multiplied disobedience more than the nations around you and have not walked in my statutes or kept my judgments, therefore I'll do this. He says, I will do among you, verse 9, what I have never done. What's the great tribulation? Jesus said, a time so awful, it has never happened before, no, nor ever be like that again. and saying the same thing here effectively. I'll do against you what I have never done and the lack of which I will never do again because of all your abominations what same-sex marriage very same word abominations and of course many other things we're doing all the other adultery and fornication wife-swapping and all the things we get into this horrible uh, thing of of of, of, of uh, people getting into pornography And, of course, taking drugs. All of that is an abomination. So it says in verse 12, a kind of a summary, one-third of you shall die of the pestilence, disease epidemics, one-third of you of famine, lack of food, and a third shall fall by the sword. So they're going to be killed, but a part of them and scattered to the wind. So they're going to be scattered into captivity and I'll draw a sword after them. But even some of them we saw are going to be punished eventually that begin to gripe and turn away from God. So these things are happening. He says in chapter 6, the word of the Lord came. He said, set your face toward the mountains of Israel. And he said, I will bring a sword against you. I will destroy your high places. Verse 3, verse 4, then your altar shall be desolate, broken down, Verse 5, I'll lead the corpses of the children of Israel before their idols. And notice verse 6, Ezekiel 6, verse 6. In all your dwelling places, this is talking specifically, more importantly, about modern British descended and American peoples. In all your dwelling places, the cities shall be laid waste. And the high places, your places of worship, desolate. New York, Chicago, Los Angeles, New Orleans. London, Birmingham, Manchester, all laid waste. And Sydney has the greatest gay parade celebration on earth today Sydney, Australia. Other places go into that. They will all be laid waste. Very specifically, what's going to happen at the time of the end to modern Israel? He says, then, verse uh, 9. Then those of you who escape will remember among the nations where you're carried captive because I crushed your adulterous heart. And they shall loathe themselves for the evils that they've committed. And say, oh boy, we wish we'd listened to Mr. Armstrong. We wish we'd listened to Mr. Ames and Mr. Meredith. We wish we'd listened maybe to some of the other younger ministers, some of you young ministers who are used to finish this work. We wish we'd listened to the church of God, the servants of God. And they shall know that I am the ever-living one, and that I have not said in vain that I would bring this calamity. Pound your fists, stamp your feet, and say, Alas, for all the evil abominations of the house of Israel, for they shall fall by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence. So it's going to happen. And, of course, he says these kinds of things again. He says over and over, verse chapter 7, verse 5, Thus says the eternal God, a disaster, a singular disaster. Behold, it has come. An end has come. The end has come. It has dawned for you. Behold, it has is, is come. Doom has come to you, and you dwell in the land. So God is very strong, very plain of what's going to happen. And, of course, we've got to understand where we are. We've lost the pride of our power. We're not together. When the trumpet sounds... While some who are different races won't respond. They'll say, well, this is this white man's war, or this, these big shots war. Others of other religions will say, well, we're Muslims, working, we're, we're not going to fight for these pagans, these Christians, what they'll call us. We're not going to fight for them. Uh, verse 14 here of the next chapter, chapter 7, verse 14, they have, I've blown the trumpet and made everyone ready. But no one goes to battle. Our nation is so divided that they will not respond. No one goes to battle, for my wrath is on their multitude. The sword is outside, the pestilence and famine inside. Whoever's in the field will die by the sword, and whoever's in the city, famine and pestilence will devour him. It's all talking about what? In the day of the wrath of the Lord, that latter part here of verse 19. So God is going to bring this on us, and he says in verse uh, 23 here, Make a chain, for the land is filled with the crimes of blood. The city is full of violence. Therefore, I will bring the worst of the Gentiles, are often described as the ancient Assyrians, the house of the city, the nation of Assyria. The worst of the Gentiles, they shall possess their houses and take away their places. Notice verse 26. Disaster upon disaster a rumor upon rumor all kinds of things people wondering what's going on how can this happen it's going to come quickly and scare people to death and they won't know what to do so we do need to understand how brethren we're coming to the time of the end and we're coming to all these things happening I want now to turn at this point if you would follow me here so you get the whole picture turn to First Thessalonians turn back to First Thessalonians we read this the other day Part of it at the memorial for Mr. League. At the end of chapter 4, which is talking about the resurrection, he said, therefore, comfort one another with these words. Chapter 5, 1 Thessalonians Thessalonians chapter 5. But concerning the times and seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write unto you, for yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord, the day of God's intervention in human affairs... So comes as a thief in the night. Again, some of these Protestants try to say the day of the Lord means Sunday. Does Sunday sneak up on you every week so you don't know when it is? That's ridiculous. (laughs) comes as a thief in the night. This time of terrible trouble is going to come when most people don't get it. You can get it if you study these things, if you understand, if you believe this book. These things are starting to happen right now. For when they say peace and safety, that's what they're saying now, then sudden destruction... The Bible uses that term many times, sudden. It's going to happen quickly, and only those in God's church who are watching and praying will really get it. They will be ready, but most people will not be ready. And even the Laodiceans in God's church who don't understand are not on edge watching and praying. They will not understand in time. Then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you a thieves. But you're all sons of light, sons of the day. We are not of night or of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others, but let us watch. We in God's church must learn to watch these world events. Let us watch and be alert or self-controlled. That's what we're commanded to do, not only in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament. Notice now, brethren, back in Revelation chapter 3, Revelation chapter 3, and I'm going to begin reading here. And Revelation 3, and after I heard it, turn to it myself. Revelation 3 and verse 14, he's been describing the various eras of the church. Up to verse thirteen, the Philadelphia era that has an open door before it. And he said in verse ten, You have kept my command to persevere, I will keep you from the hour of trial, the coming tribulation that will fall upon all nations, the whole world, lest those who uh, to test those who dwell on earth, because you've kept my command to persevere. Behold, I come quickly. It's going to happen quickly when it gets going. I come quickly. Hold fast that you have. Those of you, brethren, who still believe the basic things we've taught, hold fast. Don't give up and quit. Prove it to where you know and know that you know. That's why I've tried to show you these keys, certain things that people in the world don't get, who we are, the timing. It can't not be ancient Israel. Things are prophesied to happen long after what happened in ancient Israel. All the other things. You need to understand these keys. Prove it. Check it up. So you're to do that. A whole fast that you have that no one take your crown. Now, verse 14. And to the angel of the church of the Laodicean right? these things says the amen, the faithful and true witness. Christ tells the truth. The amen. The beginning of the creation of God. The correct translation for that, by the way, is not the beginning, but the big beginner, the originator. Christ was not a created being. He was the originator of the creation of God. God created all things by Christ. That's just a mistranslation. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. He tells this last era of the church of God. And that includes some of you and some of you brethren around the world who hear this. These people are called this. Some of you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. It's not that being cold is so evil. It's just that you're off in the world and you're part of it and you don't get it. On the other hand, you're sort of in the church. You sit among God's people as though you were God's people, but you're drifting. You're drifting. You're not on fire to get this work out. Some of you are stealing from God. You are not tithing. God calls you a thief. You know that back in Malachi 3. And he says he brought ancient Israel into captivity because of Sabbath breaking and idolatry. Many have many forms of idolatry in their lives over and over. They'll put all kinds of things ahead of God. And certainly many, even in God's church, don't fully keep the Sabbath. They'll be watching TV programs, ball games, all kinds of things on God's holy Sabbath. They don't honor God's holy Sabbath. So you're neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. I want you to be one way or the other, and I just sort of sit there doing nothing. So then because you're lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew you out of my mouth. Please, brethren, that's what Almighty God is warning our people, and I think you all need to understand that. You may not be evil people. You may come to church most of the time, You may partly keep the Sabbath. You may give a little bit of tithes. You may be keeping most of the holy days most of the time. You may be basically nice people, not hating or killing, just a little bit of lying, a little bit of exaggerating, a little bit of hate and competition and jealousy toward one another, a little bit of human nature here and there, sometimes a lot. God says, get rid of all of it as you possibly can. Don't be cold or don't be lukewarm Learn to be on fire for Almighty God. Because you say, I'm rich and become wealthy and have need of nothing and do not know that you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy of me gold refined in the fire. And that expression often means persecution, as you know. Great trials and tests. Great trials and tests are going to have to come on all of us, refine us. We're going to have to make decisions to go all out for God. And put our faith and trust in this book, and the God of the Bible, even to our peril. sometime. Learn to that faith and that courage. Gold refined in the fire that you may be rich and white garments that may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness, your spiritual nakedness may not be revealed. And anoint your eyes with eye salve that you can see. You don't fully see, some of you. You don't fully get it. Mr. Armstrong used to tell the church at Pasadena again and again in the last few years of his life, I don't think about half of you get it. You're sitting here, you're nice people, but you don't get it. And that was true. Not only half, but about 75 or 90, 85% fell away. They did not get it. I can start naming the members of the Council of Evangelists, the Council of Elders, all these other leading groups, all the old men who were younger at the time that were student body presidents, leading ones, fell away, fell away, fell away. I know them. I, I worked with them. I taught most of them. And in fact, at part, I was not the total one that taught them, Mr. Armstrong and Ted and others. But I know them very, very well. They all fell away. They were not evil men. They just were weak. And when troubles came along, they just left the church. They went back to the world. One man had a great big voice and sort of a John Wayne-type voice and personality, great big long arms, and I remember one outside lady that was, used to play cards with Mrs. Aparte, I not remember, but she said, John Jones, his name was not John Jones, by the way, John Jones, the actor, he should be studying Shakespeare because he was so impressive in his personality, it takes one to know one because she was our bridge partner, but her husband was in the church, but she wasn't, and she could spot it just like that. Some of our ministers were nice. They had good voices, good personality. When I was teaching the advanced public speaking and homiletics class, the very first lecture I gave, it said, look, fellows, we're here to learn how to preach. That's what homiletics means, preaching. But I said, our main goal is to teach you how to preach and use your voice properly to know know, and organize and get the right points and organize your, you know, get notes and backup and everything like that. But I said, I want you to know, before we go any further, that some of the people with the best voices and best personality in the whole planet are selling beer, they're cigarette salesmen, all the rest of it. The main thing is that you preach the truth, that you preach the truth. That's the most important thing of a prospective minister's. You must stand for something. And if people see you up there preaching and you're over here getting drunk on the side and you've been found seducing their girlfriend or their later wife and people like that, you've lost all credibility with them. And that is what happens sometimes. That is the old saying even the Protestants use. I cannot hear what you're saying because of what you're doing. So we've got to stand for the truth, brethren. We can't water it down and just play act. We've got to have fire in our belly. And if we say we are the Philadelphia Church of God, that we are going through the open doors, our passion is to get this message to the whole world, not just to have a Saturday social club. Let's do it. Let's get behind the work. Let's have our fire in our belly to get this message out, to help others, to sincerely want to help them, to reach them while we have the opportunity. I count to you to buy me gold and the fire, and anoint your eyes so you can see. Verse 19: As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. So he's going to rebuke and chasten the lay of sins, not because he hates you, he loves you. He wants you to wake up before it's too late. So he's going to bring this tribulation on even some are in the church of God who are very weak. They're really weak as water they don't stand for anything so don't let that happen to you don't let that happen to you another thing of prophecy the next era that's not it's here right now it's getting worse it's affecting the world and many of you in this room are in, frankly I have talked to some of our other leading members here and ministers they know that you're not bad you're just kind of drifting don't let that keep on brethren I can't be sure of everyone. I knew some of these ministers back then were evangelists, were turning aside. I told Margie, my wife, I think so and so not going to be here in five or ten years. I told her several, and I was right on every one. But I may have missed them. I said, I can't be sure, honey, but it sure looks like it. they're doing this and doing this and doing this. And sure enough, they're all gone. Evangelists, don't assume that you're just Philadelphia, just because you're sitting here. Wake up, brethren. Give your life to God with a passion. Mean it. Turning back to, uh, at this point, back to Jeremiah, if you would, turn back to the book of Jeremiah, and I want to uh, describe this scripture that certainly applies today. This is what some of you are going to be doing later, but God help you to do it now. He describes the people returning from captivity. Jeremiah 29 and verse 10, thus says the ever living one, after 70 years are completed at Babylon, the captivity of Judah, I will visit you and perform my good work toward you and cause you to return to this place. He says, I know the thoughts I think toward you uh, of peace and not evil, of giving you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me when you finally come back from captivity then you'll call upon me and go and pray to me and I will listen to you. You see, then. And I will listen to you if you seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. Do you regularly pray, God, please help me to get better. Please help me to really come out of this world. Please help me to understand any of my faults. Clean me up and scrub me out when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found of you, says the Eternal, and I will bring you back from your captivity and gather you from all the nations where I've driven you and bring you to the place from which I caused you to be taken away captive. If with all your heart you truly seek me, you shall surely find me. May God help you and me and all of us to do that as the events speed up at this time to the end. God grant that we may all wake up and go after God with all our heart and all our soul.